We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Many people consider Dr. Joseph Lister to be the father of modern surgery. He was renowned for referring to his line of work as this bloody and butchly area of the healing art. And given that Lister was active in the middle of the 19th century, this was unquestionably accurate. At that time, surgery was brutal and bloody. Additionally, it wasn't even that efficient. Many people only visited the hospital as a very last resort because the likelihood of dying on the operating table was so great. It should come as no surprise that so many patients passed away during or shortly after surgery. After all, hospitals in the Victorian era were crowded, filthy places. With the benefit of hindsight, we can marvel at the surgical methods and procedures used in the 19th century and be morbidly fascinated by them. By today's standards, some of the techniques used by the self-declared medical elite are so perplexing that it's amazing any patients were helped at all. These are the horrors of 19th century surgery. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. I'm Dom, and welcome to episode 32 of Horror House, True Crime, and the Macabre. I hope you, dear listener, are doing well. You are amazing, you are strong, and you are worthy. I just want you to know that. So if you're tuning in for the first time, hello. (laughs) I am super, super stoked that you're here, and you've decided to check out my little, little humble podcast. And before we get the ball rolling, for those listening for the first time, do consider joining the Cultivate Network Discord, where you can hang out with the other amazing shows on the Cultivate Network, and you can shoot the chip with yours truly in the Horror House chat, in addition to giving thoughts and feedback on episodes, episode suggestions, and all that good stuff. And that's not just for people listening for the first time, If you've listened since day one and you haven't joined the Discord or you don't know about the Discord, please follow the link in the bio, join the Discord and come hang with all of us at Cultivate. It will be a grand old time. So on with the episode and we are doing something a little bit different for episode 32. It's not a true crime case. It's not a paranormal case. It's not a case of the unexplained. This is all about the bloody brutal and gruesome world of surgery in the 1800s. So, let's get to it. So to start off with, what is surgery? Well, surgery is the area of medicine that deals with the physical alteration of a bodily structure for the purpose of treating, diagnosing or preventing disease. Surgery, according to the 16th century French surgeon uh, surgeon named Ambrose Paris, is to eliminate that which is superfluous, restore that which has been dislocated, separate that which has been united, and join that which has been divided and repair the defects of nature. How poetic, right? (laughs) How poetic. 
Since they first discovered how to make and use tools, humans have used their skills to create surgical techniques, each one becoming more advanced than the last. However, up until the Industrial Revolution, surgeons were unable to overcome the three main challenges that had dodged, that had dogged the medical field since its infancy, bleeding, pain, and infection. Advances in, this in these fields have transformed surgery from a risky art into a scientific discipline capable of treating many diseases and conditions. But exactly how brutal was surgery in the 19th century? Well, pretty fucking brutal. Pretty fucking brutal, I'm not going to lie to you. Many people considered going to the hospital to be their absolute last resort in Victorian times. That's because having surgery may have really resulted in your death rather than improving your health. The mortality rates for surgery in the Victorian era, era were, I mean, put, to put it plainly, were fucking terrifying. One in 10 patients, according to some estimates, would perish. And that was in the most hygienic of operating theatres. Rather unbelievably, if you were unlucky enough to be in one of the worst, one in four patients uh, would pass away within 24 hours of their operation, if not on the operating table itself. Some patients would experience fatal heart attacks while on the operating table and died of shock from the sheer agony of the procedure. Remember, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that anesthesia would be commonplace, so patients would be very, very aware of their operation. Others would lose their lives even though Victorian doctors used a variety of severe techniques to control bleeding. However, infections would cause the majority of patient deaths. In fact, some hospitals uh, in crowded, filthy London charged patients who were scheduled for surgery for their own burial. However, the good news is that if you defied the odds and survived the operating room, you were offered a complete reimbursement of these funeral expenses. Hospitals in the Victorian era were dirty, unpleasant, disorganized spaces. And even that is an understatement, to be totally fair. Surprisingly, the doctors would enjoy the circumstances. However, it wasn't simply blood that they enjoyed seeing. Pus was likewise considered to be a welcome sight in the wisdom of the time. Of course, nowadays, you don't need a doctor to understand that pus is a dead giveaway of an infection. However, some surgeons in the 19th century would refer to it as the laudable pus and were proud of their work when they looked at a seeping incision. Many patients died and would keep dying because of this bl uh, blissful ignorance, even after medical trailblazers like Joseph Lister would begin to warn about the lethal hazards of infections. So... I hear you say, how did surgeons lessen or at least attempt to uh, dull the pain of surgery? Well, before the development of modern anaesthetics, surgeons would try a number of different techniques to lessen a patient's suffering. Large amounts of gin or whiskey were sometimes administered to patients in the hopes that they would simply become drunk and pass out. A variety of medicines or even narcotics like opium imported from the East were favoured by other surgeons. While alcohol was mostly unsuccessful, opiates were occasionally excessively effective. 
In fact, cases of patients passing away from a drug overdose after, after simply going in to have a limb removed were startlingly frequent. Amputations were far more commonplace in this time period than they are now. Put simply, if a fractured bone pierced the skin, well, you can kiss goodbye to that entire limb. The surgery was violent, agonising and extremely risky, especially given the likelihood that the patient might bleed to death. There were techniques uh, used by surgeons in the Victorian era to control bleeding, and these were the same techniques used by doctors in ancient Greece or on a medieval battlefield. Suffice to say, there had been very little progress achieved in stopping blood loss. The most typical way to stop a patient from perishing from bleeding to death was to cauterize the limb stump. The amputated limb was usually dumped next to the patient who would then get a bloody close-up glimpse of their own mutilated limb into a pail of sawdust. The surgeon would then next insert a hot iron into the stump, scorching the veins and arteries and permanently sealing them off. The patient would have been in agonizing pain, especially if they had received no pain medication, which highly likely that they didn't. In fact, testimonies from Victorian era hospitals frequently mention the repulsive stench of burned human flesh. Lovely, lovely stuff. I'm really selling how just absolutely amazing it must have been to be a patient in a Victorian hospital. Lordy Lord. Surgical methods were at best crude, even at the end of the Victorian era. But that didn't stop the surgeons of the 19th century from trying some absurdly complex and ambitious surgeries. Amputations wasn't, wasn't all they did all day. Surgeons would perform operations on the tongue, the ear, the cheek, and even the eyes of their helpless patients while utilising the most recent anatomical research and textbooks. Uh, one textbook, for instance, provided guidance to surgeons on how to rectify the abnormal alignment of the eyes. This would require splitting the muscles holding the eyeball in place in two, often without giving the patient anaesthetic first. Good fucking grief. <laughs> Good lord. No, thank you. Just just eyes in general. I'm just, I'm not about that. But no, that, oh, that sent shivers down my spine a little bit. The removal of tumours or malignant growths was a part of other ambitious surgical treatments. To access the jaw or the back of the tongue, surgeons would literally peel back an entire face. They would literally peel back the entire face. Um, large portions of the jaw have occasionally been removed once more without the use of anaesthesia. The world's best and most horrifying collection of Victorian medical imagery uh, may be found at the Wellcome Collection in London. These illustrations depict the wide range of surgical techniques that surgeons of the day tried to perfect. Today's surgical patients would probably prefer that their doctor would take their time, but the opposite was very true in the 19th century. Speed was the name of the game and it was crucial to move quickly. After all, patients had surgery without the use of contemporary anaesthetics to lessen the discomfort, so they were eager for it to be finished as soon as possible. Moreover, a fast amputation was easier to patch up, 
significantly reducing the likelihood of a patient bleeding to, get, uh, bleeding to death. It was even said that the amount of time spent on the operating table was directly uh, collated to the likelihood of a patient making it out of theatre alive. On that note, enter Mr. Robert Liston. Oh, this man, this man, my lord. Liston, a British sur uh, surgeon, surgeon, the fuck is a, a surgeon? <laughs> What's that? A British surgeon in the 19th century was known for his speed and skill in an era in which both were pretty fucking important in terms of pain and survival. Known as the fastest knife in the West, Liston, it was said, was able to take off an arm in around 30 seconds and was able to chop off a leg in just over two minutes. It was also said that he was so extraordinarily strong and quick that he was able to use his left arm as a tourniquet while using his right hand to control the knife as the victim writhed and screamed in absolute agony. According to the renowned nurse Florence Nightingale, he insisted that his helpers time him and he even held uh, bloodied knives between his teeth so that he could tear out bad limbs with both hands free without losing a second. Liston also has the dubious honour of performing an operation that had, wait for it, a 300% mortality rate. Well, potentially has that dubious honour. The event that author Richard Gordon refers to as Liston's most famous case has been labelled as fictitious and the existence of the surgery has not been confirmed by any primary sources. But does that mean you aren't going to hear how an operation is even able to result in a 300% mortality rate? Of course not. So, get ready, because this is wild. I hope it's true. I, well, I kind of don't, but I also kind of do. <laughs> so, as the story goes, Liston was performing a routine leg amputation, his bravado and his speed very much on show. However, Liston was so focused on his speed that when he brought his knife down, he would slice off the fingers of his young assistant and as he swung the knife back, he would slash the coat of a spectator. The spectator, so terrified the knife may have pierced his vitals, would die from shock and both the patient and the young assistant whom Liston unwittingly amputated her fingers from her hand would both die from gangrene. Again, no sources confirmed this ever took place, but if it did, holy fuck balls. <laughs> like, how? <laughs> oh, dearie me. That is insane. Uh, one patient who came to Liston for the removal of a bladder stone wound up escaping the doctor and locking himself in a restroom. The patient was brought back kicking and screaming to the operating room by Liston, who at six foot two was a tall man for the time. There, Liston tied the guy up and just started to cut him open. Uh, Jesus Christ. And in another example of just how brutal surgery was at this time, in the 1820s, when 12-year-old Henry Pace was informed that he would have to go undergo a leg uh, removal procedure without any anesthesia, he inquired as to how painful the procedure would be. Uh, in order to calm the kid down, the surgeon would assure him that the pain would be comparable to getting a tooth pulled. If you said to yourself, now that's a fucking lie, 
then you would 100% be on the money on that because as a result, Henry Pace was completely unprepared for what awaited him. He was so awake, so aware of what was happening that he remembered counting six strokes of the saw before his little leg fell off into the hands of the surgeon and was dropped with a sickening thud at a bucket underneath the table. On that note, <laughs> what, a, what a note to, to take a little break on, right? On that note, it's, it's time for a quick commercial break. See you in a few, my friends. Hey, Bays. This is Alicia. This is Katie. And this is Paige. And we are Crime, crime Bay. Bay. We are a true crime podcast bringing you at least one episode a week. And we are going to cover a wide range of topics uh, varying from the more known, well-known stories, your serial killers, to the more lesser known um stories such as supernatural myths legends cryptids yes we know you guys want to know about mothman Mm -hmm. who doesn't um and we're gonna be fun and humorous at the appropriate times too and sometimes the inappropriate and sometimes inappropriate (laughs) we got to make ourselves laugh to keep from crying you know sure you follow us on instagram tiktok twitter and facebook all at crime bay podcast Thank you so much. We look forward to uh, making you a bay. Thank you, bay. Hasta la pasta. Hey there, I'm Jules. I'm Lisa. I'm Matt. And we are the hosts of Eye for an Eye podcast. Each week we share a true crime case that truly fascinates us and discuss whether or not Eye for an Eye was met. Does the punishment fit the crime? Was it too harsh? Too lenient? Tune in every Monday to hear our thoughts and make sure to follow us on social media to join the discussion. You can find Eye for an Eye on all listening platforms by searching Eye for an Eye podcast. We hope to see you there. And now back to the episode. Operating rooms were occasionally referred to as gateways of death, according to medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris author of The Butchering Art. However, rather than deterring visitors, a morbid name drew big audiences. Indeed, most surgical operations were public events, and some of the Victorian era's leading surgeons would draw massive crowds, especially in London, with medical students, surgeons, and the general public all crowding into operating theatres. Victorian society was completely preoccupied with the concepts of progress and science. And in a time long, long before movies and television, many people would go to surgeries to watch the struggle between life and death for the entertainment value. Obviously, this was quite risky. According to the reports, surgeons occasionally had to compete for space with spectators. Such distraction would unquestionably cost both life and limb. The dirt and bacteria that these crowds also brought into the operating room posed the greatest risk. No one cleaned before entering hospital for the majority of the century, and the majority of people would watch operations in their everyday attire, including their grime and sludge-covered overcoats. Surgeons would routinely hang their gowns on a rack by the door, leaving them for weeks without washing them. They would then simply put them over their normal everyday clothes when it was time 
to get to work. Indeed, a clean gown was seen as a sign of an idle surgeon, while an apron covered in blood, guts and the pus of numerous patients, the sign of a busy man. So what kind of surgical procedures would one fear the most during the Victorian era? Well, buckle up, because this ain't for the squeamish. So to alleviate pressure, uh, pressure in the head, a Victorian surgeon might perform a procedure known as trephination, in which he drilled or scraped holes into the skull. Even before the discovery of anaesthetics, uh, surgeons frequently performed mastectomies on patients with breast cancer. They would use a hook-like instrument to lift the soft tissue before making two sweeping cuts around the breast to remove it. Specialists called belly rippers would remove uh, ovarian tumours in a procedure known as a ovariotomy. Ovariotomy. <laughs> I can't, I, any medical term is, is a no-go for me. I, I, that might have been completely wrong. But we move. <laughs> we move. A long incision was made across the abdomen in this procedure, with, which often became a source of sepsis. Sometimes normal ovaries were also removed to treat the menstrual madness, masturbation, and cases of insanity. Right. Okay. <laughs> She's masturbating too much. She's having too much of a fiddle with herself. Let's remove some of her normal ovaries because that's going to cure the problem, obviously. And obviously, it's the ovaries that make you insane. Like, what is uh, Victorian knowledge and medicine? It's just something else, right? Something else. A lithotomy was used to remove bladder stones and was one of the most feared surgical procedures of its time. Guys, listening to this, prepare yourself. Um, prepare yourself, because this sounds like it sucks. Major balls. I'm not gonna. T I'm not gonna lie. So steal yourself for this. The condition was most common in male patients, and how um, did they remove the bladder stones? The surgeon would ram a metal rod down the patient's penis and cut through the fibrous muscle of the scrotum before sliding his fingers into the opening to remove the stone. Good fucking grief. My God. Like, <laughs> what the hell was that? Oh, no. Oh, God. I don't feel very well now, honestly. I'm not feeling too good, people. <laughs> I'm not feeling too good after hearing that. That is a hard, hard no. I mean, I, I couldn't get hard, I don't think, after that. But that's a hard no, hard no. And then, of course, as mentioned, amputation. During an amputation, a surgeon would make a sweeping incision around the circumference of the limb, pulling away the skin and muscle and soaring through the bone. A capable surgeon would, uh, a capable surgeon, sorry, I can't talk. Let's have a third attempt at that. A capable surgeon, there you go, could do this and tie up the arteries in just under two minutes. So that sounds fucking diabolical, right? Right, yeah, I agree, 100%. No wonder people are just like, nah, fam, nah, I'm, I'm just going to die at home. <laughs> like, fuck, um, fuck this, I'm dying in the comfort of my own home. So the big question is, what changed? Well, in the field of surgery, as with medicine in general, 
a lot of progress was made over the course of the 19th century. A young surgeon by the name of Joseph Lister bought into the uh, burgeoning hypothesis of invisible germs and started experimenting with various chemicals as a result of the rising problem of hospital and surgical patients just dying left and right. He, in, he eventually discovered a method to transform carbolic acid into antiseptic spray that could clean wounds and sterilise equipment. The medical profession in Britain would oppose him, and in order to convince American surgeons, Lister would visit the US, where he would also run into scepticism. However, he was able to convince the Americans in the end. But what about the torturous agony of even the most simple of operations? Well, ether was a chemical compound that was being used as a recreational high in the United States by the middle of the 19th century. The nobility frequently organised ether frolics or parties and it was during one such frolic in the town of Jefferson that a physician by the name of Crawford Long discovered the relationship between inhaling ether and the reduction of pain. Due to his ether intake, a participant who fell hard did not display any signs of discomfort. Because he wanted to be sure his theory was accurate, Long would never publicise his findings. When he pulled a tooth painlessly in 1846, an American dentist by the name of William Morton claimed to be the first to successfully employ ether as an anaesthetic. However, a lot of people uh, were also making the same claim, so Morton fought for his title for the rest of his life. As a result of Morton's painless surgical approach, ether use in operating rooms skyrocketed uh, in popularity. The first ether-assisted limb amputation in Britain was performed by, guess who, one Robert Liston. Uh, Humphrey Davy, a young chemist, discovered the anaesthetic qualities of nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas. Nitrous oxide, which Davy discovered while experimenting with novel gases to breathe, not only produced a strong sense of exhilaration, but also significantly reduced pain. Sadly, Davy's discoveries were ignored and he primarily kept them to himself and his companions for entertainment purposes. Approximately 30 years after that, laughing gas was first made available to the medical sector. Most people are familiar with chloroform as the medication that is frequently used in movies to put people to sleep. However, it wasn't until James Simpson, a Scottish uh, obstetrician, obstetrician, I think, uh, and Robert Liston's former colleague, started experimenting with substances to employ as a novel anaesthetic, that chloroform was recognised for this trait. Simpson sought to develop a drug with the same anaesthetic, anaesthetic uh, benefits and fewer negatives because he was aware of ether shortcomings. Inhaling chloro uh, chloroform in 1947 caused him to lose consciousness immediately. Later, Simpson employed chloroform on labouring mothers, which sparked a great deal of debate in the medical and religious communities. However, this controversy was put to bed when Queen Victoria swore by chloroform after receiving it with the delivery of Princess Beatrice in 1857 and Prince Leopold in 1853. 
Hannah Greener, a 15-year-old who just needed surgery in uh, 1848 to remove an ingrown toenail, was the first person to die from chloroform. Although the cause of Greener's passing is still up for question, many today think that cardiac uh, dysrhythmia brought on by the chloroform may have contributed to her demise. Today, we are aware that the ideal anaesthetic does not exist. However, using a variety of drugs instead of just one powerful dose of one anaesthetic is far safer and more efficient. Today, we employ more than 100 analgesics uh, during surgical procedures, and technolo uh, technological breakthroughs have provided us with the ability to carefully monitor every biological function throughout the treatment. And that is a wrap on episode 32. A bit different from, you know, my normal true crime or paranormal or uh, cult or, you know, unexplained, you know, all of that stuff. But I still hope you enjoyed. However, surgery in Victorian London? Absolutely fucking not. Absolutely not. I don't even like going to hospitals now. So that's a, that's, that's a big no from me. If you enjoyed the episodes, uh, please don't forget to rate and review and recommend the show. You can find the podcast on Instagram and on the Bird app at horrorhouse underscore pod. And be sure to follow the social media pages and on your podcasting app of choice. Also, don't forget to join the Cultivate Network Discord and come hang out with yours truly and the other amazing shows that make up the Cultivate Network. So, all that's left to say from me is until next time, stay spooky, you beauts. <laughs>